Well, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can find it on page 844 of a blue pew Bible in front of you. Uh, thank you to Andy Steen, uh, one of our elders who preached last week and really did a fantastic job handling a somewhat of a bizarre story with um, real just grace and clarity. And uh, if you were here last week, you'd understand when I'd say after listening to that, that um, I don't know if I ever would have gone fishing with Andy. But there's no chance I'm going with him um, if he ever invites me uh, after that. But we had a great week away. Um, Rochelle and the kids are prolonging their trip. They'll stay out in Wisconsin and fly back on uh, Friday. Uh, but I was out there for a week. Great time to get away. Great to be back. And we just appreciate uh, a church who allows for and encourages uh, time away. Um, well, I'm a bit more excited than normal for our passage this morning because not only uh, are these set of verses amongst the most famous uh, in the Gospels, but it's also the set of verses that the whole first half of Mark has been pointing to, okay? So if you are visiting with us this morning or maybe you just become, uh, started coming recently, uh, we began walking through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse, started uh, Chapter 1, verse 1 on January 7th, and just going verse by verse through this whole gospel. And our primary teaching and preaching rhythm here at Grace Church is to do that, to go through books of the Bible. Uh, we have the conviction that that is the most effective way to, to equip the church and, and equip us all to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ and just to play a part in making disciples. And uh, uh, there's a lot of reasons even under that why we think it's the most effective way. But uh, just one to share uh, this morning is that when, when you go through books of the Bible, um, it ensures that every single passage is read, interpreted, and applied in the context of the entire book. Okay, so if you uh, think about it, this, this is really true for any book by any author. Maybe now it's officially summertime. Uh, some of you might have some summer reading lists that you want to be working through, going on vacation, traveling, uh, kids for school, having these lists. And so some of us are going to be reading maybe books more than others in the next couple of months. But any author writes a book with the intention of it all being read, don't they? Like, you could just pick up a book and open it to the middle, and you could just read a chapter, and, and you could maybe get the gist of what it's about. You can get a feel for kind of what's happening, but, but you will get, for sure, a fuller, deeper meaning of that chapter if you read everything that came before it, if you plan on reading everything after it. Maybe you're not a reader, all right? So let me include you in the illustration. Maybe you're going to watch a movie this summer, all right? On point, uh, a Netflix documentary. Um, you could uh, just pop in the middle of a movie theater and watch a scene, and you could enjoy the scene. And you can even be entertained by the scene and go, man, that was just a good scene, good acting, good action, uh, good drama. But it will be far better to know what happened before that scene, to fully understand, to fully grasp what has come before it. And, and in the same way, any passage in the Bible, the context of what a passage lands in is so vital, right? Because, uh, and, and the reason why I'm just saying all that this morning is because that is especially true for this passage this morning. We're going to look at four verses. Will it mean a shorter sermon? Maybe, probably not, all right? But we're going to look at four verses this morning. And, and standing alone, you could read these verses and you could go, that's a good, that's a good passage, there's some good stuff in there. I, I could learn from that. I could even benefit from it. But reading it in context of everything that has happened in the Gospel of Mark before it, these verses are explosive. 
They are a big deal. And, and for everyone in the room, from non-believers to seekers to new believers to mature believers, they are, these are foundational. So July 1st has been a date circled in my mind ever since January, knowing six months is going to point towards what we're seeing on July 1st. And praise God, we made it here. So let's go. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. The reason why this passage is so important is because it contains the most important question in the Bible. And therefore, the most important question that we face in our lives. It's not the only question about life. It's not the only question about identity and eternity and, and what's important. But it is the most important one when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? If you think about it, every person in the world has a quote-unquote most important question in their lives. A, a question that shapes them whether they realize it or not. And, and it seems in the world, the, the question beneath all other questions seems to be most often, what, what makes me happy? Am I happy? Study after study over the course of generations have found that happiness is the core desire that people pursue, the, the, the thing below everything else, that the filter through which we view everything is, am I happy? And, and the pursuit of happiness is what shapes what we think about and, and how we see ourselves and, and the things we do or the things we don't do. And we just want to know, am I happy in this life, in this, in this job, with, with this person uh, doing these things? And listen, it's not necessarily a bad question to ask. But according to the word, it's not the most important one. So here's our outline this morning, if you want to take notes. As it pertains to this question, the most important question, here's what these four verses tell us. It, sa it tells us, what do they say? What do you say? And then we'll unpack, why does it matter? What do they say? What do you say? Why does it matter? So first, what do they say? Jesus and his disciples travel from Bethsaida, where he, uh, we saw last week, gradually healed the blind man that Andy preached on. And, and they go from Bethsaida straight up to Caesarea Philippi. So uh, we always look at maps right here through this series. Where are we? Where's Jesus at this point? So throw one up. Uh, Bethsaida at the very northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. And then Caesarea Philippi is 25 miles straight north. A single road in the ancient times that connected the two. And so... Jesus and his disciples, by the way, we're not told why they're going there. We just know that's where they're going. And so they got a long walk ahead of them. And so Jesus, on the way, tosses up this question. 
They're on the way to this city, Caesarea Philippi. If you look across history, it's one of the more famous ancient Roman cities in this region. Uh, There are plenty of remains to this day that show that it was a very spiritual place. There was a plurality of gods. There was places, famous places of pagan worship. And on the road, as they're walking, Jesus just seems to ask a casual question. Hey, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street these days? Hey, guys, what, what are you hearing? What do they say? I'm always fascinated by the fact that when we have just normal discussions with one another, how often one of us will say, you know, they say. Like, they gets a lot of pull in our lives. Don't even know who they are, right? Like, they say you shouldn't eat after 8 p.m., you know, because it's what they say. It goes right to your hips after 8 o'clock. Right? They, they say eggs are now bad for you. you know, they were bad for you, and then they were good for you, but hey, they say they're bad for you again. Don't eat too many eggs. And, and we never kind of know who they are, but again, there's a lot of influence that they get in our world. So Jesus goes, what do they say? Disciples hear this. I imagine they're a little bit nervous. Because while Jesus seems to just throw out a casual, harmless question, they know this is what everybody wants to know. Like, it's all that people are talking about everywhere. Even the disciples have asked it. Do you remember back in chapter 4? Jesus calmed the storm in the boat. The response of the disciples, were, were, were they just pumped up and joyful? No. Were they relieved? Oh, man, that was a bad storm. Now it's gone. No. Mark tells us they were terrified and then asked this, quote, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And so the disciples give him the answer. He says, well, Jesus, um, some say you're John the Baptist. Uh, others are saying you're, you're Elijah. And, and then even others, just one of the prophets. It's, it's an interesting list. Um, It's the same three things that people said to King Herod back in chapter 6. King Herod was asking about, who who is this Jesus? Because words started getting around of all these kind of crazy things he was doing. King Herod, the, the Roman ruler over this region of the Roman Empire, he was not Jewish. He did not believe in the Jewish God, but he rules over the Jews. And so he asked the same question. All this buzz starts to come up. Who is he? Who is? Who's Jesus? It's a question all over the book of Mark in the first eight chapters. And three answers came back. His officials, his guys around him, they said, okay, this is what we're getting. This is what we're hearing. It's, it, it's John, who, by the way, is dead at this point because King Herod beheaded him. So it's John who's back from the dead. Others are saying it's this prophet named Elijah. And then others are just saying it's one of the prophets of old and in the Jewish tradition. That's chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. King Herod heard all those things and decided in his own mind, it's, it's John. It must be John whom I beheaded. Just feeling the guilt of that, knowing it was a ridiculous reason to behead somebody. And now he's back. And that even gives us a window into the spiritualized culture of the Roman Empire at the time, that that was actually something that the leader of the empire in this region actually thought happened. A man was back from the dead, right? Just this kind of belief in these spiritual kind of realm and, and powers. And, 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 but here, here's the thing, regardless, 
of what you believe or don't believe, the culture had to put a definition on Jesus because he was there, physically there, and he was doing crazy things. Healing people, feeding thousands, driving out demons, and, and these stories get out, and when they happen over and over and over again, you just can't deny it. So you got to do something with it. you got to think something's going on here. And so here are some kind of reasonable opinions. He must be John the Baptist. Why would they think that? It's because they're preaching a very similar message. Repent, the kingdom of God has come. Receive the forgiveness of sins. He, he's drawing crowds like John the Baptist did. And, and he seems polarizing like John the Baptist was because some people loved him and some people hated him. Or he's Elijah. Jewish culture knows that across all the prophets in the Old Testament, in their scriptures, Elijah was unique amongst the rest because he performed a lot of miracles. Here's a prophet, performed a lot of miracles. Here's a prophet, performing a lot of miracles. This must be Elijah. But if you know your Old Testament, there's another reason why they think this might be Elijah. Do you remember how his life ended on earth? Here's a hint. He didn't die. What? It's kind of weird. Where is that? What book, right? Now go back and read it. Elijah didn't die. He was taken up off the side of the road by what we, what we read as chariots of fire. The only person in the Old Testament who just, just didn't die. And not only that, but in Malachi 4, which is the final book in the Old Testament, the final prophet, the Lord says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And then 400 years of silence. And then Jesus. To be honest, it's kind of a reasonable hypothesis. It's Elijah. He's back. Or for the people who want to play it safe, maybe you're this way, just keep it more general in person. He's just one of the prophets. Could be any number of them. Could be Elijah, could be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. Take your pick. Just He's one of them. He's the latest in a long line of prophets. And here's the thing. Those are all positive representations, right? So, so by passing this along, the disciples assume these are kind of compliments. These are good associations. But they're wrong. They're impressive, but they're wrong. Because what do they all have in common? All those guesses that he's just a man. He's an impressive man, but he's, he's just the latest in a long line of other impressive men. And while partially true, you know what? Jesus is a man. It's still wrong. You see, there are times when a partial truth is wrong. I heard a pastor say it once like this. Um, let's say if you're married and you were at a social function with your spouse. All right, so I have a wife, so I'll use my wife as illustration. Let's say me and my wife are at a social function. I am terrible at introducing her to people. All right, I just, I've never been good at it. I'm still not good at it. So let's say we're sitting and we're talking to somebody, and somebody just says, as we're talking, goes, hey, who, who is this? Okay, what if I said this? What if I were to say, this is one of the many beautiful women I know? Or, this is the latest in a long line of women I have loved. (laughs) 
Okay, there's two things you could say about that. It's partial truth. There's many beautiful women in the world, and I think she's one of them. You could say that, yes, I have loved many women, my mother and my aunts and, and my cousins, and she's just the latest in a long line of women that I love. You could say those things are true. And then second, you would say, that was the wrong answer. <laughs> like, that ride home is not going well for me. Like, I might even get to that point. That moment might just blow up on the spot, as it should, if that was my response when I was asked, who is this woman? See, there are times when a partial truth is wrong. Yeah, Jesus is a man, but he's not just a man. And in all seriousness, today, in America, in the West, across the world, the most dangerous mistake is to have a faulty perspective of Jesus. To misdefine Jesus is to lose him altogether. And it's dangerous with eternal implications. Today, we know that virtually no one will deny that Jesus the man existed. Uh, multiple polls have shown that about 95% of Americans believe Jesus existed. To, to de deny that is just kind of blind ignorance. But 95% say, yes, there was a man named Jesus who lived in this region during this time, and he was executed by the Roman Empire. But most, most people, when you ask them, hey, who, who is he? Tell me about Jesus. Here's what you'll hear most often. Jesus was a man who created a lot of excitement. Jesus was a man who challenged the status quo. He was a great teacher of, of morality. He, he stood up for those who were marginalized. And we can learn from him. He has set us a good example of putting others before yourself. He's a great teacher. And we would hear that. We'd say, that's true. But it's just partial truth. Jesus did all those things. I mean, if there's one thing we've seen week after week after week going through Mark 1 through 8. We've seen his compassion for the world. His compassion for the lost. Not just their spiritual condition, but their physical. And he does care about morality. And so there, he does care about how his followers live. How his followers treat others. He wants us to pursue justice in our culture. And to stand up for those who are silenced. And those who are marginalized. He calls us to step into those spaces as he did. Yes and amen. But that's a partial truth. It's not who he is. It's not the primary thing he has come to reveal himself to be. And so it proves to be a faulty perspective of Jesus. Not because it's not true, but because it's only a partial truth. But the reason why that's so rampant is because it fits into our individualistic culture, doesn't it? Like if Jesus is just a teacher, if he's just an example, then I'm in the power seat. Right? Because I can choose what I want for myself of his teachings and what I just kind of want to discard. This sounds great. I'm up for this, that. I, guess I can't really work with that. It doesn't fit in our agenda and our culture this time around in this time of history. And so I'm going to take what I want, leave what I get. It's all good. But the problem is Jesus doesn't stop there. Because he says, second, what do you say? Okay, okay, I understand that's what they say, but what do you say? 
I don't think it's random that they're heading towards Caesarea Philippi when he brought up this discussion. Because, again, they're heading into a city that has a plurality of gods and a plurality of places of worship. And so there was a lot of options. A lot of options to say, hey, here's everything. Take your pick. It's interesting. The more you study history, the more you find Eastern, ancient Eastern history reflects a lot of what we're seeing in current Western culture. Anyone, everyone could choose whatever God or combination of gods worked for them. You decide for you. They'll decide for them. It's all good. So what do you think, disciples? You have all these options before you. What do you say? Who do you say that I am? This is the question that has been so elusive to men and women throughout the whole gospel of Mark. It's the answer everybody is after, but nobody has quite nailed yet. That's what I mean when I say I've been looking forward to this moment ever since we began because we as a church ought to appreciate this moment of how we've covered every verse in this gospel up to this point and nobody has said it yet. And then Peter is the first human being on earth to explicitly say it. Jesus, you are the Christ. In Matthew's parallel account, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. No man or woman had clearly made that connection up to this point. They're the only ones to say it so far in the gospel. Were, were God the Father at Jesus' baptism, chapter 1, when he said, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And you know who else knew? Do you remember? The demons. The demons rightly defined him twice. They called him the Holy One of God in 1.24. And then Jesus, Son of the Most High God in chapter 5, verse 7. The spiritual realm knew full well who Jesus was. But no human has said it in the world. Across history made the connection who Jesus was until Peter says it here. It is explosive. And he speaks on behalf of the disciples and I think for us, when we read it now, like that's still, it's, it's hard for us to understand the weight of this. Because in our culture, we think like Christ is Jesus' last name. Like that's always the way he's been referred to, Jesus Christ. Most people say it when they're angry for some reason. Still don't figure that one out. But right, that's the, that's the correlation, Jesus and Christ. Like it's his last name. But people didn't know this. This wasn't even on their radar. That wasn't even an option. Christ is the Greek translation to the Hebrew word Messiah. They mean the same thing. Two words that mean anointed one. Jesus, the anointed one. In the Old Testament, you, you were anointed if you had one of three offices. If you were a prophet, if you were a priest, or if you were a king. Three offices in which people were anointed by God, but no one in the Old Testament was all three. You go down the list. Moses was a prophet, acted as a priest, but was not a king. That shadowy figure, Melchizedek, right, who came up in, uh, in, in Genesis, he was a priest and a king, but not a prophet. Even David, everybody knows David. The man after God's own heart, we're told, even he was a king and a prophet, but not a priest. And now Jesus comes, and he's all three. The first one who was anointed across the board. He is the true and better prophet. He is the great high priest. He is king over all creation. Jesus is the Christ. And by declaring this, Peter hits the nail on the head. He's, he's, he's not just a good teacher. 
He's not just popular. He's not just an impressive man. He's the one. He's the Christ. He's the one we've been waiting for. Now, as we'll see next week, Peter and the disciples, they, they get this right. But they don't see and understand everything. They don't understand all the implications of this truth and what it means. We have the whole back half of Mark to figure that out. But just like the man Jesus gave, uh, just like the man that Jesus gave sight to last week, gradually, that's why Mark put that story right before this one. That's a physical picture of what's happening right here. The disciples are slowly gaining sight. It's not the only question they're going to need to know the answer to, but it's the most important one. Jesus, you are the Christ. So third, why does it matter? For us here and now, we can understand that, hey, this is what culture said, and then, and then this is what w- Peter says, and what we should say. Well, wh- why does it matter? Two things. It matters because it's the foundation of faith, and it matters because it's the foundation of the church. First, foundation of faith. Knowing and believing that Jesus is the Christ is the foundation of saving faith. Now, again, I just have to be clear here, right? The, the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, it's not the only question the Bible answers. It's not the only thing you need to know. It's not the only question of a life of faith. It's not even the only important question, but it's the most foundational one. Just like a foundation is not the only part of a house, not by a long shot, but it's the most vital, isn't it? Let's say you're in the market to buy a home and, and you're out looking and, and you come across just this decked out place. It's got the indoor pool. It's got the indoor basketball court. You can tell what I would like. Um, you have a massive kitchen. You have a movie theater and you're just going room to room and you're like, man, this house has it all. And for some reason you put an offer in and it gets accepted because they feel bad for you. I don't know. All right. And, and then you, you get it and you're like, this is happening. And then you go to inspection. And the inspector goes around, and everything looks good, everything's new, everything's solid. But then he goes, I just need to go into the basement. And he walks around the basement, and he comes back up, and he goes, Brother, I'm sorry, there's a faulty foundation here. There's cracks galore. This foundation is compromised. What does that mean? It means everything about the house is nullified. Everything you love goes out the window because everything rests upon the foundation. And if the foundation is bad, the house is bad. And in the same way, Jesus as the Christ is the foundation of a life of faith. Everything else about your life must rest upon it. And and you could have some great outer qualities of things. You could have some great rooms in your life. You know what I'm saying? Where people would look upon that and go, man, that is awesome, awesome quality. Look at those skills, look at those talents, that is impressive. But if at the heart level, if the foundation is bad, the house is bad. The heart is compromised and it nullifies all the great things on the surface. Jesus is at the core. This question is at the core 
this man who has come to forgive us of sin, who restores us to what we've been created to be by dying on the cross, who, who redeems us from the pit, who ransoms us from slavery, who saves us and reconciles us to him and to one another. Him, like belief in him, the son of God, Jesus is the Christ. For those in here who have not believed this, this is the call on your life this morning and every morning until you believe to see, to hear, to receive the gift of sight and to believe. It's the foundation of faith and with it, it's the foundation of your entire life. Now, most of you, praise God, you have confessed this. Some have done it recently. I was sitting there with you. Some did it years ago, some decades ago, far long before I was even born. And you might think, okay, pastor, Jesus is the Christ. This sermon could have been five minutes long. I'm glad I'm here for a sermon for, for other people. But what's this mean for me? Brothers and sisters, it means everything. At every point in your walk with Christ. Let me put it this way, if I could carry just this word picture of a house even a step further, um, sometimes people treat this truth and the answer to this question like it's the front door of a house and not the foundation. It's the entryway in, but once you're in, you don't need the door. It can be forgotten about as you move on to bigger and better things throughout the house. And over time, if you look back and the door needs to be changed, big deal, it's just the door. But when this is the foundation, everything else relies upon it. Every one of us wake up every single morning and we see ourselves a certain way. Some of us love it and some of us hate it. But we all have an identity that we wake up with every single day in our own minds. How you view that rests upon this question. How you view your life your, your day-to-day, what you do, where you go, what you spend money on, what you hope in, what you rely on, every relationship you have. If the world's lens through which they view all those things is the question, how does this serve me? How does this make me happy? The mature and growing believer's lens through which they view the world is, how does this serve Christ? How does this glorify him? This question is foundational for every believer because it answers the question, what's most important, me or God? And it's the key of a life of self-denial for the purpose of the kingdom. To believe this, to truly believe it, will shape, will mean you shape your entire life around it. And I want you to hear me real quick, clearly. There is a difference between knowing something and believing in something. It is possible, and we need to hear this more today than any time in history, it is possible to know about Jesus as the Christ, but not believe he is the Christ. What's the difference? To, To just know is to give mental assent, to hear things and go, yes, I understand, but then live a life which is not affected by it. To believe Jesus is the Christ is to have that truth be the most important thing about you, which impacts the way you behave. When you believe, it impacts the way you behave. 
put it another way, if what you say you believe about Jesus does not inform and shape how you behave in every single area of life, then you do not believe. We're not calling for perfection here. There's, there's, not, there's not a standard of living that you need to reach to to be considered a Christian. But there is an inner reality in your heart that what you say you believe informs and shapes how you behave in every single area of life. And the biggest horror in our culture now is to equate knowing what I need to know with salvation. And knowing without believing is hollow. So let it be true that all of, of all the things people might say about you, they know that your foundation and your joy rests in the truth that Jesus is the Christ. So it's the foundation of faith. And then lastly, it's the foundation of the church. In Matthew's gospel, which I referred to um, earlier, it's, it's kind of the more prominent, the longer version of the scene, the one that people are most familiar with because it's just more drawn out. And, you know, Mark kind of gives the abbreviated version. But after uh, Peter says this, um, Jesus renames him. He was Simon up to this point. But Jesus takes this moment in order to mark it. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He's saying, I didn't tell you this. My Father revealed it to you by his grace. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Some of you know that these verses in Matthew serve as a major departure between Protestant and Catholic theology. First, we believe that salvation is rooted in grace alone. Salvation is accomplished by grace alone through faith alone. Flesh and blood does not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Faith was given to you. It was a gift. Right? Catholic theology would believe that justification is, is a combination of grace and works, where Protestant theology would say it is by grace alone, through faith alone. And then the Catholic Church will say that this verse affirmed Peter as the rock of the church, meaning that through him and the apostolic line, uh, there has been a succession of popes in every area to be the rock of the church. Where Protestant theology and what we believe here at Grace Church would say that in context, the rock Jesus referring to is not Peter, but the confession. The confession that Jesus is the Christ, that is the foundation of the church. But for our purposes this morning, I just wanted to point out, do you see how Jesus connects this truth with the church? Why do you have to bring up the church in this? Peter believed and he gets it, but why now start talking about the church? A church that has not even really been planted yet. That movement has not even started yet. Because he wants to be clear that Jesus as the Christ is something that is personal, but it's not private. The moment you believe, it makes you part of God's family, the, the body of Christ, and, and you inherit brothers and sisters, and it's a community that God uses to shape us and disciple us to be salt and light in the world that pushes back against the darkness. Jesus as the Christ is not the only truth that guides the church, right? But at its foundation, the church and Grace Church will rest upon it. Listen, people will say much about us in the church. These days, some of it will be positive, most of it will be negative. Some of that we bring upon ourselves, and some of it is just unfair. But let it be true 
that what we are known for most, what we are most passionate about, is proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. If you want to be known for that, play a part in something that declares that. The world turned upside down because this is true. And God is still building his church, and the gates of hell won't stand against it. And we get to play a small part in that now, and it starts with this question, the question that no one could ignore. Everyone will answer it, whether they think they will or not. Who do you say that I am? May God grant us the faith to see it, to say it, and to live our lives dependent upon it. Let's pray.